Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. Think of an urban environment that's divided along ethnic and religious lines, the result of war and conflict, an urban landscape where services and institutions maintain and reinforce divisions between people and communities, an urban space where geographical terrain becomes remapped as friendly or hostile, safe or unsafe, even where there are no physical boundaries that exist. That's Mostar. It's a city in the Bosnia-Herzegovina region in the former Yugoslavia. Just after the war, there in the middle of the 1990s. And that's the city where our special guest this week arrived, just after the war, to help implement a program of structured music learning and participation specifically aimed at young people traumatized by that war. Her name is Gillian Howell, and she calls these projects music interventions. This week and next, in a two-part special series, Communication Mixdown is looking at the ways that music can be mobilized to open up an important space for social connection, collaboration, empathy, and dialogue in divided, conflict-ridden cities. So this week we're going to be going to that ferocious war zone in the former Yugoslavia. And next week, we'll be looking at the shared music making that takes place in Northern Ireland. So let's get to the interview that I did with Gillian earlier this week. Gillian Howell, you describe yourself as a musician, an educator, and a facilitator of creative music projects. I'd like to start with a musician. How did this develop? How did I become a musician? I started playing music when I was in primary school. I was very young, actually. I mean, I was I was just very fortunate that I went to a school that had quite a big music program, and it was it was the 1970s, so there was budget for music education and, and I guess enthusiasm, but there was a huge amount of enthusiasm in this particular school, and we had a lot of different ensembles, and I used to get up very early in order to go to school beforehand every day for ensemble practice and I was staying after school quite late so it just was a big part of who I was and what I was doing and how I filled my free time. And your instrument was a clarinet as I understand. Yeah yeah so I mean I played a few different instruments in primary school but that was the main one and um, the one that I kept playing. And then you went on to study in in Australia and then elsewhere in Europe? Yep yep so um, I did an undergraduate 
degree at the VCA. And then after that, I won a scholarship to study in Hungary. So I went off to Hungary and, and then I stayed away for quite a few more years. I had um, some other opportunities to study. I was kind of one of those perpetual students, I think, who, um, you know, grabbed a scholarship and studied somewhere and then found another scholarship. But in between, I was doing interesting work, mostly in London, um, but I was sort of between London and different parts of mostly Eastern Europe. Um, okay, so there you are. You're a musician. Uh, concert halls, rehearsal rooms, I'm imagining this, even your lounge room perhaps for practicing. And there you are again working in an area about with to do with community music and music education and you're immersed in projects dealing with young people and their experiences in conflict of conflict zones and post-conflict settings. Bosnia-Herzegovina and the war after after the war in Yugoslavia, Timor-Leste, as I understand it, Georgia from the former Soviet Union. Is that, is that That's right? right, yep. Now, how did this come about? How did this transition happen? Was there a kind of epiphany or was it a, a slow burn? Um, well, it was, uh, I mean, a few different things. Um, mainly, I I think the main catalyst was I... Like I said, I'd been doing a lot of study in Eastern Europe, but I was working a lot in London. And one of my roles in London for a while was as a um, musician in residence in a primary school in London that had very high refugee intakes. So in London at that time, there were particular schools that um, local authorities knew had a really good capacity to support young new arrivals who didn't have a lot of English. And at that time, there were quite a lot of Roma children, so uh, children from the, um, we might, you know, the old-fashioned and, and incorrect word now is gypsies, but mm-hmm. these days we know they speak of them as a Roma group. Anyway, and so a lot of them were coming from countries that I had lived and studied in, so um, I enjoyed my interactions with them through this music project and, and it got me thinking about um, you know, sort of conflict and division. But also at that time, the war in Yugoslavia um, had been going on and when it finished, I read about um, a big music project that was taking place and just felt a very strong sense that that was a project I wanted to be part of and that I had skills to offer it. Uh, so I called the London office and they directed me to the director of the music centre in Mostar, the town of Mostar, and told me to call him. I think I sent a fax, actually. I mean, this was the 90s, so it was faxes and phone calls and um, or handwritten letters. And I got a very non-committal reply back saying, quite grudging, yeah, you might have some skills, it could be good. Uh, if you can get yourself here, we'll see if there's a role for you. And, you know, that was in a way, that was enough. Um, mm, mm. I was young and adventurous and, and saw no reason why that I shouldn't just go and check it out because it felt like something that I wanted to do and I'd be good at. Let's explore that a bit more. The uh, It's post-war Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. the city's Mostar. It's, it's called the Pavarotti Music Centre. And uh, as I sort of thought about it, it's sort of like a case study in the way that music and music making and community involvement can be used to help promote conditions of, I don't know what, social interaction, empathy, conciliation. You went there. What did you do when you went there? Um, I was working in the schools program, which was uh, an outreach project. So there was a team of musicians, probably about 15 or 20 of us. Uh, There were two internationals besides myself, and the others were all local musicians. And we worked in classrooms. We basically had what the the Bosnian curriculum at that time um, had allowed for music and arts education, but they didn't have any music or arts teachers. In fact, all of the adults who remained were traumatised and um, 
you know, so they, the possibility of them offering playful, um, fun, interactive, participatory, energizing music activities, or alternatively, peaceful, calming uh, music activities that provided solace and asylum for for troubled young people. Those two things weren't going to be happening, so they agreed to hand that time slot over to the Pavarotti Music Centre's schools outreach team, and then we went in and delivered music workshops on a weekly basis all around the region. So we were probably most of the schools, secondary and primary schools in Mostar, kindergartens. We went throughout Herzegovina, so we had... Uh, Mostar is quite close to what they call the inter-entity boundary lines between um, the Serbian-held part of Bosnia, the Croat-held part of Bosnia, and the, the Bosniak part. So um, we were working across all of those lines and going in with a team into those schools. And some of the towns and villages that we worked in were very, very isolated, had been very, very cut off. They didn't see much aid. They didn't see many foreigners. And they certainly didn't have people turning up with guitars and clarinets and xylophones and other instruments. How did you deal with the language issue? Well, I'd already studied Russian for fun. I actually really love studying languages. Um, probably my main hobby if I have one outside of my music work. Uh, so actually for a while I was I was across the grammar but completely confused with the vocab because there's differences between Russian and, and um, Bosnian or Serbo-Croatian and uh, it was easy to get muddled and come out with the wrong word in the, in the mm, other language. Mm. But... Um, you know, there's a, a lot of people had bits of English as well, so you you study, work with work with the materials that are available, a teach yourself mm. Serbo-Croatian book that I had, and then uh, you know keep talking to people. Language comes, and I think everyone who's been a music teacher in an environment where they don't have the local language, or here in Melbourne, I've worked a lot with new arrivals, so they don't have English. Um, you learn what words are really useful. Um, and you use mm, those words. Mm. <laughs> you learn those words first. Give us uh, just. Um, I'm trying to get uh, a picture of what you're doing in mm. in in this area. Mostar is a, a city which you said it's a, a conflict zone, or it was a conflict zone. The whole countryside is. It sounds to me is, is caught up in this kind of stuff. And you're going into classrooms. What, what, just to give us an idea, what would you be doing with the, with the young people? We had a big um, collection of songs, songs from all around the world that had been translated into the local language. So each week we would teach a song. We also did a lot of work with um, rhythmic games, a lot of work with uh, music-based communication games um, and tasks. Uh, we did some songwriting uh, we carried a small collection of um, instruments with us, uh, you know, sort of small percussion instruments that we could hand out and they would play. Um, I mean, it varied from classroom to classroom and w- w- there weren't always opportunities to, say, build a project over a number of weeks. Um, but uh, but overall, you know, the songs all tended to belong to a particular collection of on a particular theme, like uh, one one of the terms when I was there, we were doing a theme of animals. So each song each week was about a different animal in some different part of the world. Um, mm. And, you know, the idea was about engagement. It was about, I mean, when you, and, you know, traumatised children and most of the kids we worked with had showed very high levels of trauma. Um, uh, I guess our project was working with recognising that there could be two extremes of behaviour from very, very hyperactive, hyper-aroused behaviour and very, very passive, withdrawn. So in the second type, you know, there might not be really any eye contact happening, but in the first type they could be sort of bouncing off the walls and unable to concentrate on any one thing for any real length of time. So we used music to try to help them, help the kids find a slightly more uh, functional 
level of energy for themselves, whether that was raising the energy slightly or reducing it. And so we would match the the musical materials we brought in to the energy level that was predominant at the start of the class and then just notch it either downwards towards the middle or upwards towards the middle range um, with each song or each activity in order to find how, something how old more. Were, how old were the kids? Were they, combi- they combined classes, multiple ages? Oh, uh, no, generally pretty similar to what you'd find in a school here. So um, and we didn't, didn't tend to work with the mm, oldest kids in the school. We would probably go up to about year nine. So kindergarten to year nine and oh, wow. age groups like yeah, we'd find yeah, yeah. here. I mean, they weren't bunching loads of kids together in the one room because right. the schools had been largely rebuilt and the classrooms were, you know, Functioning and what 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 year are we talking about now? What well, I was there in 1998. Okay. So the Bosnian War ended in 1995, but in the Herzegovina region, in the Mostar region, then there was a ceasefire that um, came uh, in 1994 mm-hmm. um, in that particular conflict there. So um, I think our sense of it from outside the country is often that it's just one big war, but in fact there are lots of different um, localities that had their own. Time frames, if you like, uh, and we can see and that. What now. about your own, your own? Um, I don't know what you call it. Your own kind of uh, sense of integrity, or, or how you kept yourself together in that situation. Did you have people who were helping you, supporting you? I'm trying to think of. I guess to, we supported to... each supported each other. Um, no, you know, actually, that was probably quite one of the quite difficult things. If I read through my journals of that time, then an awful lot is dramas with people. Um, unfortunately, it would be not, I would now I'd be interested to read more about what we were doing, what the music involved, what took place on a daily basis in these different settings that we were working into. But I think it was a very intense place to be. Um, mm. You know, it was. Wow, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick, picture all this and. We were all a, quite young. We were all sort of in our 20s. I think everyone was – we were all drinking a lot. Sure. I'm not a smoker, but everyone else was smoking a lot. Um, you know, and, there, was, there was a lot of – I mean, and also because the local people – this was not very long after some of these truly terrible events and they were really – you know, they, a lot of them weren't sleeping. They'd seen and witnessed all sorts of dreadful things. Mm-hmm. Some of them had done dreadful things. I, I had the sense – I mean, you know, these were – Without not wanting to sort of no. explore that too much because I feel like that's someone else's story to mm-hmm. tell, but but certainly there was a, you know a a real sense of of trying to just keep busy, and therefore we lived life in this incredibly intense, lively way, and sure. not much sleep, not a great deal of nutritious food. I mean, I'm so much older now, so I really look back on it. You wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I'd probably do it differently now, but. Um, I mean, it was an incredible experience as well. And also, I think for me musically, um, and, you know, it, it really got me thinking about this thing that humans do, this music-making thing. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. 
This week, Communication Mixdown, we're talking with Gillian Howell. She's a music maker and uh, educator and community organizer, and she was working in post-war Yugoslavia. And we'll continue with the interview. She's talking here about some of the power that music has to bring people together, to share things, and... um, potentially create empathy. That's what I wanted to ask you about because one of the things I I read and you sent me a few things and one of the things that I, I was interesting and this is about the Pavarotti Music Center, they were given students or the people the young people given lessons and what they found really attractive and really engaging was the drumming the drumming sessions. Yeah. Is that is that the kind of experience that you had that you know, there were moments where you could just pull people into the music that kind of lifted them out of their everyday life in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, drumming was probably one of the most powerful ways that that happened. But it wasn't just about the drums and the instruments. It was also about a kind of spontaneity. So um, there was this uh, wonderful South African musician, Eugene Skeef, who came very regularly to the Pavarotti Centre. And when he was in residence, all sorts of magical things would happen because he really has that beautiful gift of just making music start. And so it could be just, you know, just an ordinary old evening and people, whoever was hanging around, suddenly you'd find that some instruments were out and there was a whole lot of music being played and then everyone was singing and then everyone was dancing and then there was more music and and all these people were joining in who we'd never seen before. And, Mm. you know, this sort of... A sense of a happening, this sense of an event that had no particular timetable or schedule or organisation around it except this confluence of people and energy. And, yeah, I mean, that I think were, especially in that first year, that was probably one of the most incredible things about that building. I mean, the other important thing about the Pavarotti Music Centre is that in that time, I mean, Mostar was divided. Now, it is still a divided city, but there's a little bit more cross-side-to-side cross traffic that happens and there's a shared school now and even though they have separate classes, there are spaces in which young people mix. But at that time, there were the, the division was far more sturdy. There's no actual wall there, but a psychological wall that pe- mm-hmm. people didn't want to cross. Um, it was very firmly in place. And the Pavarotti Music Centre, despite being on one side of the city, was probably one of the only places in town at that time where those who wanted to mix and who didn't want to be separated could go to. Um, They organised transport to bring people from the other side of the town into the music centre, those who were um, frightened about crossing, um, and dropped them home at the end of the day and or in the end of the mm, evening. Mm. They organised for bands to be able to rehearse there when at that time there was very little even electricity, buildings with roofs, um, you know, available in the town. So it was part of that sense of sort of spontaneity and that energy and that being able to feel safe and kind of get lost in the music was also about the fact that there was this building where the rules that had suddenly started to dominate the whole society outside, which didn't really make a lot of sense because these are young people who were alive before the war, so they knew what life mm, was supposed mm. to be like and how their future was supposed to have panned out. Now here was this space where when they were inside it, they could kind of imagine that this mm, was mm. life, <laughs> that this was normality. And as I and, understand it, this was a purpose-built facility. Is that right? It came yes. up after the war. It was built specifically 
as a centre. As a music centre. Yes, that's right. And with money raised by a lot of different famous musicians, the um, largest sum of money from Luciano Pavarotti, the Italian tenor, but Brian Eno was a hugely influential fundraiser. So there were some pretty interesting people who were involved in it as well. Mm. It had been an old primary school that had been bombed um, and destroyed and wasn't going to be recommissioned as a primary school. So the municipal government um, agreed with the charity, uh, War Child, War Child UK, who was the charity that mm. initiated mm. this music centre project, um, agreed that they could uh, use this ruin and have the land for free. So they didn't have to pay for the land and then they needed to fundraise to pay for the building. Um, mm, and mm. make it a reality. And, yeah, I think I started that project around 96. It was opened at the end of 97. So December this year is its 20th anniversary. And it's still going and going yeah. strong. Yeah, yeah, and there's some really interesting work that's happening out of it. It's had some very difficult times, and it probably – I mean, I know it's – the last time I spoke with the director, he, uh, who's the current director of the Music Centre, he, he said it's sort of more like survival than anything else. We're here, we survive – could be a lot better. But, you know, it's a very, very difficult place to run a cultural institution. Uh, I think most post-war environments are. There's not a lot of money and there's not necessarily a huge amount of interest because post-war environments are very political. So if you're not aligning yourself with a particular political side, then you're probably not going to get the support that you need. Um, But despite that, yeah, there's some really great things. There's a Mostar Rock School, which is doing incredible work, bringing, yeah, it's incredibly popular and brings young people from both sides of the city together to play in bands. They record and put on concerts and and have a great time being rock stars in their teenage years. I wanted to just ask you one thing about Timor-Leste. Were Mm. you doing the same thing in Timor-Leste that you were doing in Mostar? No, in Timor it was a little different. So I, in Timor-Leste I was um, based in a town called Los Palos. I was uh, working with um, on behalf of an NGO which is run from Australia and but is but mainly works in Timor and in Los Palos, this town in the eastern side of East Timor. Um, and they are a, a, a humanitarian organisation, development organisation that is focused on cultural development. Uh, so I was working there as a community musician, working with young people, um, just following their interest lines and energy and, and um, curiosity and working with them to develop music projects of different kinds. And how long were you there for? That was four months. Oh, okay. well, it was, three, it was four months altogether in East Timor, but I also was working in Baokao, um with some musicians there. And Georgia? In- oh, Georgia was earlier. Georgia, Georgia was with War Child again, oh, okay. and that was a much shorter shorter trip. Yes. Um, so War Child was working, had a number of partners there, and they asked me to go over to do some work, first of all, in an area near the so – Georgia's um, had a number of different conflicts uh, since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm. So with different refugee camps that I was working with or with displaced people, internally displaced people, both in Zugdiri and in Tbilisi, the capital. Hmm. Um, hmm. Well, you're very well traveled, and uh, I guess very, uh, very much part of uh, a, a very particular kind of movement. I guess what is it? Community mu- music and uh, engaging in post-war, what sort of reconcili- reconciliation, peacemaking? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the way that it's shaping up. You know, at that time, it didn't really have a particular name. These were really new kinds of projects, and War Child was a really maverick kind of. NGO going in this direction um, at that time. I mean, now I think there's a bit more structure and, and yes, now I think we'd probably call it music and peace building or um, 
But it's not always about peace building either. Sometimes it's just about giving people the chance to feel human again and engage with a cultural aspect of life in a time when all of that has been in a way diminished or, or, or certainly disrupted but sometimes devastated. Sometimes just they've lost the tools with which to um, express themselves artistically. They've lost the energy. They've lost the actual spaces in which they might perform or make work. They've lost the guitar strings or the instruments. Mm. Um, so sometimes, it, yes, there's a, there can be a peace-building aspect to it, particularly in a divided city like Mostar where it might be one of the mechanisms for bringing people together when otherwise they there might not be many other opportunities. I, I think we should be realistic about we, what we claim of it as well. It's not that there's some sort of magic magic bullet that's going to happen that because they play music, suddenly there's no conflict. Mm. It's not like that. No. But what it does do is create a space in which people can experiment. And when you live in an environment where you've been told repeatedly by all the authority figures and by the media and your school teachers and religious leaders and everybody and your parents, they're bad. Those others are bad. You should avoid them. You actually can't live together. It's better that we not live together then it becomes very difficult to take those first steps. Um, now, some will never will choose not to take those first steps. They don't want to. But for, for those who are curious or sitting on the fence a bit, then a music project or any kind of project where there's interest, um, it could be sports, it could be visual arts, it could be drama, it's lots of things. It could be language mm, classes, mm. it could be, uh, you know, yeah. anything. Yeah, sure. But it's about, you know, it gives you a space in which it's kind of low-stakes interactions, Mm. And you get to experiment. And because it's sort of bounded by the time frame of that activity and also there is something that music, I think, offers that carries you in time. Mm. Uh, mm. You are in a way contained within the musical experience itself and it's cooperative and it's open to interpretation. So there's room for it. It has a fluidity about mm. it. Mm. Very interesting. Mm. I want to pull you right back to the present <laughs> Reading in your bio, and this is probably our final question, but my final question is, it says you're in a number of bands. Ah, <laughs> That's probably slowed a little the, bit around, at the moment so because where, of the PhD. Where, where, where can we uh, – what are the bands and when's your next gig? Oh, we, well, my, my main band and my favorite band is a Cuban band called Avenida Sol. Um, but Avenida Sol hasn't got a gig lined up at the moment because we are missing our saxophone player who's needed to travel and so we're kind of waiting on her to get back and then we okay. can start up again. But for me, that's quite convenient because I'm very preoccupied with getting a PhD dissertation finished and submitted. Uh, so After probably that. by the time I've done that, she'll be back and we'll be back. So, okay. You know, just watch this space for Avenida Sol. We're a lot of fun. <laughs> well, we will indeed. Thank you so much for being on Communication Mix now. Gillian Howell. Thanks, John. And that was Gillian Howell. She's a musician, educator, and facilitator of creative music projects. And as you heard, she spent considerable time in the former Yugoslavia just after the war, using music as a way of making gestures towards peace and reconciliation. Well, we've got to get out of here very quickly. And this is part of our two-part series. We'll hear more next week about music making in divided cities when we move on to Northern Ireland. We'll speak to you then.